Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. We say these things without understanding the weight of what this truly means. You see, today we're going to be looking at a healthy church understands the gospel and evangelizes. The gospel message truly was just displayed in those lyrics that we just sang and the lyrics that I just recited for us. When we understand the gospel, we will understand that literally all we have and all we need is Christ. So much so that Jesus is our life. Christianity is not just something we do, but it is a relationship with someone. So much so that Christ literally comes into our life, abides in us, and then lives his life in us and through us for his glory. I'm going to read Romans 1.16, our key verse for the day. Pray, and then we'll get started. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Father God, thank you so much, again, Lord, for drawing us all here today to hear your word. Lord, we pray that it is your word that goes forth from the pulpit today. Lord, that you are honored and glorified. Lord, that all things that are said and done are ultimately from you as the source and for you as the chief aim of the glory. Lord, may you be honored, exalted, and lifted up. Lord, may you increase in every single one of our lives here today, and may we decrease Lord, may you humble and soften our hearts to hear your truth today. For this is a truth that every single one of us needs to hear, whether believer or unbeliever. We need to hear these words from your gospel. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All righty, a healthy church understands the gospel and evangelizes. You see, these two things are fruits of believers understanding the gospel and evangelizing. Yet, if we are being honest, all of us probably fall short in both areas. In our understanding of the gospel and thus in our evangelism. I believe that we ultimately fall short in evangelism more than anything because we don't understand the gospel. Because the fact of the matter is if we understood the gospel we would evangelize because we would understand that the only difference between you and an atheist or you and a Mormon or you and someone that has never heard the gospel is not that you made a smarter choice than they did to believe in God, but it is that God in his infinite wisdom chose you a worthless, dead, God-hating sinner to save and redeem for himself. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. 
Every single person in this room sitting here today deserves eternal damnation. We deserve hell. We are here not because we're just smarter than those people in the world that are not here, that are not gathered together on a Sunday morning to worship the God of the Bible. But we are here because God in his grace has called us and chose us to be here. And if we understand that, if we understand that reality, that we are, as we just sang, on our hell-bound race, but God in his grace and mercy called us and brought us back to him, if we understood this reality that we are dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive together in him, every true convert, every true believer would have a zeal for the gospel. And in so having a zeal for the gospel would have a zeal for the lost to share the gospel with them. Because it is this gospel that God used to bring us to him. And we should would desire that for every single person. Therefore, when we read Romans 1.16, that this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, we understand that this message is so vitally important. That it would be on our lips and in our hearts and in our, our words all the time. But like I said last week, I think the modern church has a very poor, a very watered down understanding of what this gospel is. See, the gospel is not just say this prayer, recite after me, or, or believe in these things. But the gospel is the lifeblood of Christianity. John Calvin says the gospel in its fullness is the life of Jesus. It's the life of Christ. And what that means ultimately is twofold, that Jesus came. He, he was sinless, he was perfect, and he came down to this earth to bear the punishment that us sinners deserved. He died the death that we deserved, and he rose again on our behalf, conquering death once and for all. And now if we believe this, then we will understand that we too now die to our sin. We die in Christ. We die to our sin and we resurrect in righteousness where we live for Christ. And so today we're going to look at, we're going to break down what this gospel is. And we're going to use Paul, the Apostle Paul, as a picture, as an illustration of this gospel from his life start to finish. And so therefore, of course, we have to start in Genesis. We know that, that God created the world in sinless perfection. It was beautiful. It was perfect. And man sinned. Man sinned. And ever since man sinned, all of creation, Scripture says, has been groaning to be restored to its perfection. It's been groaning to be restored because the world that we see right now is tainted by sin. The world that we live in, is every single aspect of it, is tainted by sin. Last week, I said from the pulpit that that storm that I saw about nine days ago was the most beautiful storm I've ever seen. Constant lightning all the way from here to my house in Marine where I'm living. Beautiful lightning. Just displayed tremendously the glory of our God. As glorious and wonderful as that sight was, it's ultimately tainted by sin. 
As beautiful as this last week has been, we've finally gotten rain, the grass is green, the forests are green. It's beautiful. It's tainted by sin. All of creation is groaning to be restored. And we, as humans, God's, God's greatest creation, are also groaning to be restored. And the gospel is what ultimately restores us. Because if we believe and understand truly this gospel, we will one day be restored with God in heaven, where there is no more sin, there is no more pain, there is no more suffering. We are going to be restored. But again, ever since the fall, we have been living and tainted by sin. Do we understand that the fall of Adam and Eve was the first time in human history where man took it upon himself to decide what was good and what was evil rather than listening to God. God said, this is good, this is good, this is good, that tree is not. And Adam and Eve said, no, I'm smarter, I'm better, I'm higher. I think that this tree is good and I'm going to eat it. Now that is our disposition right now today. Our disposition is to disagree with the Lord Almighty. Our disposition is to think that we are smarter than God. Even though none of us would profess that. None of us would verbally say, I am smarter than God. The Psalms tell us the fool says in his heart that there is no God. The fool doesn't verbally go out there and profess there is no God. The fool is the, the professing Christian that goes to church and says all the right things, but in his heart does not truly believe there is a God because he's living like there isn't a God, because he's living according to his own desires and not God's desires. You see, this is the source of truth. This is. If we gravitate apart from this, we will be lost. And church, we have gravitated so far from the truth. We don't understand the gospel probably. We don't. And we all need to, every single one of us, Mark, Brian, and I included, we need to be in the Word continually. You see, the, the great Martin Luther says, It is a sin and a shame not to know our own book or to understand the speech and words of our God. Keep in mind, this is Martin Luther 500 years ago. He says, it is still a greater sin and loss that we do not study languages, especially in these last days when God is offering and giving us men and books and every facility and inducement to the study and desires his Bible to be an open book. Oh, how happy the dear fathers would have been if they had our opportunity to study the languages and come thus prepared to the Holy Scriptures. What great toil and effort it cost them to gather up a few crumbs while we with half the labor, yes, almost without any labor at all, can acquire the whole loaf. Oh, how their efforts put our indolence to shame. This is Martin Luther 500 years ago praising God for the, for the opportunities that they have to study the Word of God while also condemning everybody for not studying the Word of God in the opportunities they have been given. And that was 500 years ago preceding the time where Bibles were like actually in the hands of everybody. And so, so us today, 500 years later, we have tremendously more access to this word. Every single one of us here probably has one, if not three, if not five, if not ten Bibles in our possession that we should be reading continually. And we're not. That's the fact. That's the truth of the matter. To give us an illustration, actually, of how far we've drifted as a church and as an American people. 
Here is, in, in, in the 1500s, what the average Christian's life looked like. And I'm not arguing, I'm not saying that we need to get back to this, but just to illustrate how far away we've gone away from, from living in the Word. It says, to feel the force of this commitment of the Christian, you have to realize that in the church in Wittenberg, there were no church programs, but only worship and preaching. On Sundays, there were the 5 a.m. worship with a sermon on an epistle, the 10 a.m. service with a sermon on the gospel, and an afternoon message on the Old Testament or catechism. Monday and Tuesday were sermons. Monday and Tuesday sermons were on the catechism. Wednesday on Matthew. Thursdays and Fridays on the apostolic letters, and Saturday on John. Seven days a week and all day Sunday, gathering as a body of believers to hear and learn from the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying that we have to do that today in 2021, but what I am saying is that these people were committed to the Word of God. And so we obviously do not meet seven days a week, but our, our filling of the Word of God should not just be here Sunday morning. And it should not just be 10 minutes in the morning before work and a little devotional or listening to audio, uh, an audio book on the, on the ride to work, scripture reading to you. We should be living in this and through this. In Psalm 119, the, the psalmist asks, Lord, how can I keep my way? How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to the word. You see, we have drifted so far away from the necessity of the word. That we are a culture that doesn't understand the gospel. And because we don't understand the gospel, we don't evangelize. When evangelism is one of the most clearest fruits of the gospel. You see, this idea though, this disposition of us thinking we're right was true in the Apostle Paul's life before he became the Apostle Paul. Right? We know the story of Paul. Before Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And if we look at Acts chapter 7, 58 through 8, 3, let's look at this man who became one of the most prolific writers of Scripture and one of the greatest men to ever live, Saul. In Acts 7, 58 through 8, 3, we read, When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. This is the stoning of Stephen. They began stoning Stephen, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Saul thought that he was right in doing this. In fact, it's Saul's zeal for being right. It's Saul's desire to serve the God of Israel, the God of the scripture that caused him to persecute the church. Like Saul was not a God-hating man. Saul loved who he thought God was. And because of his love for God, he was going to go kill and murder all of these blaspheming Christians for saying that Jesus is God. Saul was so zealous. He thought he was so right for his view of God that he killed Christians. Guys, Saul knew the word better than we know the word today, probably. As an unbelieving man, yet he didn't have the Spirit illuminate the text to him like we 
do today and like he did in his later life. So Saul and his disposition could not have been more wrong. This is huge because if God didn't intervene in Saul's life, Saul's lack of understanding of what the true gospel was would have resulted in damnation for Saul. Saul of Tarsus was hell-bound. The apostle Paul, heaven-bound. The difference, the spirit of God coming in to Saul's life, convicting him of his sin and of his wrongdoing, so much so that Saul recognizes, as he writes scripture later, he says that no one can understand these things apart from the Spirit of God. Saul was a well-educated man, but he was dead wrong. It is possible for us to be the same way. It is so possible for us to think that we are right and to operate in this life as we are right, but be dead wrong. Romans 3.10 says that there is none who does good. John 15.5 says that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Those are the realities. And guys, it is possible for us to think that we are saved, to think that we're worshiping the God of the Bible, and we're not. It's a real problem. Saul was a religious man, but he was not truly saved until the promised Savior that we're told about and Genesis 3.15 came into his life. So that we have the fall and we have the sin of man that we are all now plunged into. And in Genesis 3.15 we're told that God will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Right? This is the promised Messiah that if we believe in and that if we trust in, we have life. We're, we're redeemed. You see... Paul was dead in his trespasses and sins. But God came in to his life. You see, the crazy thing about Paul is that Paul didn't know he was wrong. Paul didn't know that he was living in sin. Paul wasn't seeking the truth. Paul thought that he was right. He was going out, killing Christians, doing his thing, and, and doing it for God. He thought he was right. But God came into his life. Saul dead in his trespasses and sins, but God made him alive together. And we see this in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 through 9. And this really is the illustration of how all of us come to saving faith in Christ. It is the Lord intervening. It says, And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and through, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there for three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Saul, on his way to persecute more Christians, on his way to do more destruction to the Christian faith. But God intervened. But God comes down, crashing into Saul's life, blinds him, and saves him, 
right then and there. We read in Acts 9, 17 through 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. This was the conversion story for Saul of Tarsus, who became the great Apostle Paul. And it is the same conversion story for every single true convert of God. Seriously and truly, on a hellbound race. And we might not think to ourselves, but I, I wasn't persecuting the church. I didn't hate God. In fact, I grew up in the church. I came here hearing the Sunday messages. I got baptized as a baby, or as an 11-year-old, or as a 20-year-old. I heard the truth. I believed in the truth. The fact of the matter is that we could be blinded the entire time. Where God finally comes crashing down into our life, and he says, enough! You are living your life out of your strength and for your glory, and I have called you and chose you and set you apart so that you would proclaim my name amongst the nations. You were created for me and my glory. And so what is then this gospel that Paul believed? When Jesus comes crashing down into Paul's life, what is the gospel? Well, first and foremost, it's one of repentance. When John the Baptist comes onto the scene in Matthew chapter 3, his message of evangelism is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, his message of evangelism is the same thing. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. You see, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul recognized that he was a sinner, a big-time sinner. In order for us to truly understand the gospel, we have to understand that we are sinners. Not that we were just slightly bad, but that we were really bad. The, the word scripture gives us is dead. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins without hope in this world. That's how bad we were. And repentance is recognizing how bad we are and turning from our sin and turning towards God. Paul writes in Romans 6, 2, he says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Repentance is not just confession of sin. Lord, I'm a sinner. I know a lot of people who are doctrinally solid, who understand the doctrine of total depravity better than most, who understand that there is nothing apart from God that we do that is good, and yet there's no repentance in their life. It's just this self-fulfilling prophecy over them. It's like, yep, I'm a, I'm a worthless sinner. That's why I don't come to church. That's why I don't do these things. I'm just bad. No. Repentance is recognizing that you're a sinner, recognizing your need for Jesus, and turning towards God. Where we say, how can I who died to sin still live in it? Our sin should, should burden us. We should hate it. And secondly, after repentance, we have to believe. We have to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, in Acts chapter 16, when Paul is out evangelizing, something we'll talk about later, when Paul's out evangelizing, the jailer asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responds to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your whole household, and you shall be saved. Believe in the gospel. You see, we read in Romans 10, 9. 
that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ. However, this belief, and this is what I said earlier, the gospel is not just believe these things as simple profession or confession, right? But, the, but that's how the gospel is manifested today. We say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're like, okay, yeah. The illustration, though, that that is like is like if, if there was a person who was born lame and was lame his entire life, he could not walk, and somebody came up to him who, who could heal, and he said, man, I have healed you, you can walk. And this person just sits in that chair, and he's like, I believe you. Praise God that I can walk. I believe you. I can walk, and he never walks. That is how so many of us live the Christian life. We profess to believe that we're healed and that we can walk, but we never actually get up and walk. Our confession or profession of Jesus as Lord and that God raised him from the dead means nothing if we are not walking in those truths. We must get up and walk. And what must we believe? Paul says that we must believe that God raised him from the dead. Why is this so important? Why is this so important? Because in Romans 6, 8, Paul writes, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. If Jesus does not die for our sins, he tells us in 1 Corinthians that our sins are not, that our sins are not forgiven, that, that our faith is in vain. But if God, if Jesus does not die on the cross for our sins and resurrect, then we cannot be free from sin. We have no power over sin. We have no victory over sin. And as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So this is utterly important. Utterly important. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're not forgiven. We're still dead in our sins. Our faith is in vain. There is no heaven. And we of all people are to be most pitied. And so the exhortation from Paul is not just believe these things as if it's a true fact, but to walk in this, to walk in this reality that because Jesus died and resurrected, now we can die to sin and live in righteousness. So if we're not dying to our sin continually and we're not living in righteousness continually, then we're not believing that God rose Jesus from the dead. And secondly, we must believe that Jesus is Lord. This means that Jesus is our master. We exit slavery from sin and we enter slavery unto God. You might not like that terminology, but those aren't my words. That's scriptures. You see in Romans 6.22, he says, But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. So again, it's not just enough to confess that you believe Jesus is Lord of your life. When we baptize people, one of the questions that we say is, do you promise to make Jesus Lord of your life? This does not mean that you just acknowledge the fact that God is reigning and ruling in heaven. This means that you walk in the fact that Jesus is master of your life, that he gets to tell you how to live, and in fact that he comes in and lives his life through you. 
the benefit, the result of this, Paul says in that same verse of being enslaved to God, is sanctification and eternal life. And so if we truly believe that Jesus is Lord, then we will walk in this reality and the results will be sanctification, growing in holiness and ultimately eternal life with Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, there has to be a noticeable change here. There has to be a noticeable change here. In James chapter 2, verses 24, we see that James says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In Romans 3.28, we read, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I put them up on the screen at the same time so that you guys could see the difference, the seeming contradiction in what is being said. James says justified by faith and works. Paul says justified by faith apart from works. What is Scripture trying to say? Paul is talking about salvation, about justification, that we are justified, made, declared righteous by God in faith apart from works of law. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing that we can do to be worthy of it. And James is saying that we are justified and the fruit of our justification is works, is works. There's a noticeable change. In fact, he later goes on to say, you show me your faith apart from works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Paul and James are not contradicting each other. They're saying the same truth. Paul's talking about simple justification being made right before God, and James is talking about sanctification. He's talking about if your faith is legit, there will be works that are evident in your life, so much so that there is a noticeable change in who you once were to who you are now. You see, this was true in the Apostle Paul's life. In Acts 9.21, after he is saved and after he is baptized, it says, All those hearing him, him being Saul, now preach the gospel. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for a purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? They're looking at this guy and they're like, wait a minute, this guy is the one who, who is persecuting the church and now he's preaching the gospel? There's a noticeable change. And he says the same thing in Galatians 1, 23 and 24 about his own life. He says, but only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy and they were glorifying God because of me. There was such a noticeable change within Saul's life. That these people who were once scared of this man who was going to persecute him were now glorifying God because of him. Because they looked at who this man once was and they looked at what God had done in his life and now they're praising God for it. We should be able to look inwardly at our lives if we're true converts and look to ourselves, look to our past and be utterly disgusted at who we were but then praise God because of the work that he's done in us since. And we should be able to look at everybody else's life. We should be able to look truly left and right and see all of these people who are in this room who were once hellbound, who were once wayward, God-hating sinners, whether verbally or just in practice, and then praise God for the work that he has done in them since. There has to be a noticeable change in our lives. 
You see in 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says this about him, which is so beautiful. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. You see, that needs to be our battle cry as Christians. Noticeable change. Understanding the fact that our lives have to be different. That God has created us for himself. That God has prepared beforehand works for us to walk in, he says in Ephesians 2.10. And so then we should go out and labor all the more, but recognize that it is not us, but it is God in me. That is the gospel. That's understanding this gospel. And if we understand this gospel, then we will have these fruits of the gospel. The fruit of the gospel is the proof that we understand the gospel. First off, we look at suffering. Suffering, a concept that the American church is free from. We don't really experience suffering, so we don't really think of it as a fruit of the gospel. Yet this all throughout times past and today in the rest of the world, this is very much a fruit of the gospel. In fact, for Paul specifically, Jesus says when he saves him, I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. I'm going to save Paul and I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. In Acts chapter 14, we're not going to go to it, but Paul is preaching the gospel in Lystra. And he is preaching the gospel, and these people who hate him come up and stone him so badly. They stone Paul so badly, where everyone around thinks he's dead. And so they take this body of of Paul, who they believe to be dead, and they drag him out of the city. All of a sudden, Paul gets up, beatered and battered, bloody and bruised. And he's like, let's go! Let's keep going! Preaching the gospel. And he goes to Derby, and then he returns. He returns to Lystra, where he was just stoned. And he said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's Paul's message of evangelism. The same people that just beat him, he left, he preached the gospel to other people, and he came back and preached the same gospel to these people. And he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Suffering is a true fruit of the gospel. In fact, we see in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in John 15, 19, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Guys, if we are truly representing Christ, if Christ is really living in us, the world is going to hate you. In fact, James says in James 4, 4, that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. He who desires to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We believe that we can have two lives, that we can just, we can do this over here and be in the world, and we can have our church life, and we can just do it, and it couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus, the most gracious and kind and caring, compassionate person that's ever existed, was hated by the world, rejected, despised, mocked, and ultimately killed by them. And we think that it's not going to be true of us. A fruit of the gospel is suffering. 
Paul said, or James says in James 1, 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God causes suffering in our life. He causes pain in our life. Trials and tribulations in our life to grow us in our faith, to grow us in our reliance upon him, to refine us, to, to make us Holier, continual suffering, trial, tribulation, it's a good thing. It might be hard for a while, but ultimately it is good. And it is a fruit of the gospel. Secondly, a, a fruit of the gospel and understanding the gospel correctly will result in a desire, a hunger, a thirst for righteousness. If you are a true convert, you will desire to live righteously. We read in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. And this is like 30 years of Paul being a Christian. And he says, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 30 years or so into his Christian life. He's like, I haven't made it yet. I'm pressing on. There's more in my life that I need to give over to God. More that God needs to strip me of so that I can continue to grow in Christ-likeness. Forgetting what lies behind, I'm going onward. I'm pressing forward. My life in Christ needs to further progress. It needs to keep on going. Paul, the great Apostle Paul, the, one of the greatest men to ever live, says this about himself. Yet we have the tendency to check out in our Christian lives. To think that we've made it, we can coast. I've read the Bible three or four times through. I know it. I just read Galatians last week. I don't need to read it again. I did ten minutes in the Word this morning. I'm good. Paul's like, no! Continue. Press on. Continue in this life. And in Hebrews 3.14, the author of Hebrews tells us this. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. As the Christian life is one of daily living from Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. We talked about it last week. Paul says, I die daily. We cannot just coast in this life. For coasting, we don't have a desire for righteousness. If we don't have a desire for righteousness, then we probably don't understand the gospel. Thirdly, a fruit of the gospel is that we are going to hate sin. We are going to hate sin, we're going to confess our sin, and we're going to cry out to God to kill our sin. In 1 John 1, 9, John says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in Jesus' example of how we are to pray, he says, give us our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we also forgive those who trespass against us. A daily part of our lives needs to be our confession of sin. We should recognize day in and day out how much we're sinning against such a holy God. And in fact, the more we grow in our knowledge of how holy and glorious God is, the more we will see our sin. The more we read this word, the more we will see our sin. You see, when Paul says in 2 Timothy that scripture is given to us, 
And one of those, the reasons that scripture has given to us is for reproof. Sunday morning should not be the only reproof that you're getting. The more we read the word, the more reproved we're going to be, but it's a good thing. God is so faithful and so gracious to continually reprove us through the daily reading of his word. We should be reading the word constantly and continually being blown away at the glory and wonder of God that could save a wretched sinner like us. And when we read all these New Testament exhortations on how to live this life, we should see all the more how we fall short, which should plunge us to our knees to cry out to God, to not just strengthen us, but to be our strength, to not just make us more patient, but to be our patience. To not just make us more prayerful, but to live in us and cause us to pray more. If we understand the gospel, we're going to hate sin. If we understand the gospel, we're going to be in the word. Romans 8.13 tells us, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. One of the fruits of living in the Spirit is the constant killing of your sin. We grow cold and blinded to our sin. And God, faithfully through his word, will reprove us of that sin if we're in the word. But it's going to be hard for the spirit of God to convict us if we're not in the spirit of God's book. It's going to be hard for him to convict us and hard for us to grow in righteousness and hard for us to kill our sin if the only time that we're being fed is Sunday A fruit of understanding the gospel is hatred of sin. And finally, lastly, fourthly, evangelism. Where we're going to spend more time on. We don't have much time left, but we're going to spend more time on it. Evangelism, one of the fruits of the gospel, of understanding the gospel, is evangelism. This is one of the clearest signs of the gospel. We read in in Matthew 28, verses 18 and uh, 20, 18 through 20. Where Jesus says before he ascends, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You notice what Jesus does first and foremost before he gives this final exhortation to the people before he ascends? Before he says, go out and as you're going, make disciples, he establishes his lordship. He says, all authority is mine. And because all authority is mine, you have to listen to me. You have to obey me because I am lord of your life. So Jesus establishes his lordship and then gives the command to go out and make disciples. We must be evangelizing. You see, Paul, the Apostle Paul, after his conversion, he had this compulsion to evangelize always. Acts 9 through the end of the book is all about the Apostle Paul going out and evangelizing. He's bringing the church. He goes on three missionary journeys to these churches and he sets them up. And then then he comes back to them and he evangelizes to believers. So the first time he's evangelizing to unbelievers, he sets up a church. And then he comes back through and he's evangelizing to believers. He's sharing the gospel with believers. We as Christians should have this compulsion to evangelize. Paul words this compulsion like this in 1 Corinthians 9.16. He says, For I preach the gospel. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. 
That should be true of every single one of our lives. Woe is me if I am not preaching this gospel. I'm under compulsion to do so. The Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God is living in us, then we are going to want to preach the gospel because the Spirit of God wants God. Paul brought the gospel to the nations even, though, even through beating, through rejection, through mocking, etc. He knew, Paul knew, that he possessed the greatest gift ever and the antidote for eternal destruction. And thus he brought this antidote with him everywhere he went. And in fact, he was zealous to do so. And we as Christians, if we are made born again, we should be zealous to do so. We read in Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. This commission to bring the gospel. Where Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How will they hear him without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. We should be so zealous to share the truth because we understand that these people will not hear the truth if we do not bring them the truth. God is a God of means and his means of evangelism has been equipping his saints with the truth so that they can go out into the world and bring the gospel to the nations. I mean, just think about how many unbelievers we encounter on a daily basis, whether at the grocery store or at the public school or just walking downtown Osceola, whatever it is, we encounter unbelievers all the time and we don't share the gospel with them. A fruit of understanding the gospel would understand that God, as he says in 1 Peter 2.9, has chosen us and set us apart so that we would proclaim the majesties of his great name amongst all the nations. The praise of God should continually be on our lips wherever we go, where we are sharing zealously the good news of God. You might say, but I'm shy. I don't like talking to people. I'm an introvert. Well, guess what? Number one, it's not about you. This gospel is not about you. It's not up to you to decide if you're too shy to share the good news. God didn't say, oh, you're an introvert? Okay, you're off the hook for this one. That's not what his gospel, that's not what his word says. He says, everyone, go out, make disciples, go out, share the good news. Have this song of praise continually on your lips. And secondly, if the spirit of God is in us, Paul, this is true of us just as Paul says it to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Some translations say of boldness. The Spirit of God is in you. He's given you a spirit of boldness. We understand that this is not our gospel, and therefore, because it's not our gospel, our strength is not going to be good enough to present this gospel. And so this whole idea of I'm too shy or I'm not good enough, you're absolutely right. You're not. That's the point, and that's the key to sharing the gospel. It's Christ's gospel, and therefore, you have to have Christ's strength to share the gospel. And Christ, if he's living in you, has given you a spirit of power and boldness and love and discipline to go out and share this good news unapologetically. So, despite the rejection, despite the mocking, despite people saying, ah, church isn't for me, you're going to go zealously 
and bring the gospel to the nations because Jesus is in you. And thirdly, we recognize that the word of God is what's going to do the work anyways. It's not about us and our cleverness of speech or our cleverness of tongue. Again, the great apostle Paul says this in his letters. He's like, I am not clever in tongue. I struggle in that area. All I do is preach Christ and him crucified. That's all I do. I just bring the word. Paul trusts in the word. And it says in Romans 10, 17 that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. People are not going to get saved because you just gave them some amazing logical appeal to Christianity and to trust in it. People are not going to be saved because you paid them to come to church with you. Or you shoveled their, their sidewalk and said, now you've got to come to church with me. Ah, I shoveled your sidewalk. People are going to get saved because they hear the word of God. And the word of God is going to work in their life. We can't save people. God will save people through his word. And we as Christians should know that and know that the word of God works. Isaiah 55, 11 tells us this reality. He says, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. We as church folk, we as believers in God should just be zealous to read the word of God, to share the word of God. If you're like, I am too shy to say, I don't know what to say, just read scripture. Just read it. Because God is always going to work through his word. That's what he has sent it to accomplish. Every single time if we go share the gospel with somebody, we can have full assurance that in our words to this person or that person, God will do whatever he wants with it. Because God, God doesn't require anything from us other than our obedience to simply share. It's the word of God that will do the work. You see Paul when he's bringing the gospel to people in Acts chapter 13 specifically. It's amazing. He goes and he brings the gospel to all these Jews. And he's just preaching. I mean, he, you can go back and look at it in, in, in Acts 13. He's, he starts from the beginning of time and he goes all the way up until where he's at there in, in AD 35 or whatever it is. That's probably wrong. But Paul is there and he's, he's reciting the history of the Bible to these people. He's preaching it to them and how Jesus is the Christ. And these Jews reject him. And Paul's like, okay, I'll preach the gospel to the Gentiles then. And Paul preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. And what is said is amazing. It says, and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. It doesn't say that all the Gentiles believed in Jesus Christ. It says all who were appointed to eternal life believed. God operated through his word so that when Paul preached the gospel to the Gentiles, every single person whom God opened their eyes and opened their hearts to receive this truth believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no cleverness or wittiness from Paul. It was simply gospel presentation. And God did the work. And finally, we're going to end here. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine tells us, the second greatest command is like the first, right? To love God. The second greatest command is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. The most loving thing that we can do for someone is share the gospel with them. In fact, it is tremendously unloving not to. We talked about it several weeks ago when I was preaching. It's like, it's like as if the gospel was the cure to cancer and every single person on earth had cancer. And you have the cure of cancer. You know the cure of cancer. And you yourself have been cured of cancer. But out of your desire to not offend someone who has cancer, you're just not even going to offer them 
they answered. You're not even going to offer them the cure. You see this person dying of cancer, and whether they've just told themselves, it's okay, I'm not dying, I'm better than this, I'm conquering it, or they're just withering away, and you don't want to bring it up because it's a tough subject. You choose not to offer them that cure to cancer. That's what it is like, except far worse, actually, because this is not just a physical disease that every single person has. It's a spiritual one. It's a spiritual one that if it is not cured, is not cured by the antidote of the gospel in Jesus Christ, that is the power of God unto salvation, that person will spend eternity in hell. The same hell that every single one of us here deserves and is worthy of, yet God in his mercy called us out of through his gospel. We as Christians, if we understand the gospel, should be so zealous to share this truth, to share this good news with anyone and everyone we come in contact with. Because it's the greatest gift that every single one of us has been given. And we should love and desire that for every single person. Because if we love God and his word, we are called to love his people. And sharing the gospel, I would argue, is the most loving thing that you can do for anyone. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so much. Lord, for your word. Lord, we pray that, that you would work mightily and powerfully through your word here today. Lord, that you would convict us of any unrighteousness. And Lord, that you would equip us, Lord, in your righteousness to go out in the world. To, to preach the good news to anyone and everyone. And first and foremost, Lord, to ourselves. Lord, that you would, you would cause us to recognize that we are in dire need of you. And that everyone else is too. Lord, we thank you that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ. And Lord, you set us apart to do good works that you have laid beforehand for us to walk in. That you have not just laid us up to ourselves to operate in our own strength, but that you've equipped us with yourself living in us. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to die continually. To our desires, die continually to our flesh and live in you. Lord, may you be exalted and glorified in this place as we go out here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.